thank you, Lord. What an amazing God you are. We thank you that you are with us and that you comfort and strengthen, you provide, you protect. Lord, you're an amazing, gracious Father. We thank you for that. Thank you for all the images you give us in the Word of God to help reveal who you are to us as your children, Lord. We thank you for that. And now, Lord, I pray as we delve into your Word and look at a very interesting passage of Scripture, Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts and minds. We will hear your voice speaking to us in our innermost being. Lord, I pray that you will help us become strong and courageous in an hour where we see so many challenges that come before us, Lord. I ask, Father, that we will respond to the evil around us in a supernatural way, that we will respond full of grace, full of truth, and full of love. And we thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. 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 Now you can be seated. I'll let you be seated for a bit here. And we're going to look at God's Word together. And we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark. We've been doing a series out of the Gospel of Mark. And what a powerful Gospel this has been. And we're in the 14th chapter. We're just rolling along. And at Easter, you notice I skipped ahead. We did the crucifixion. We skipped ahead. We did the resurrection. But I want to continue. I want to finish this book because there's so many good things inside of the Gospel of Mark. How many know there's probably nothing worse than a person using their position of authority and power in an abusive way. I mean, no, that's terrible. And, you know, people many times violate that position of trust. They're abusive. And we have to recognize that God calls people into leadership for one reason. It's an opportunity to serve people. And it's fascinating to me. I was reading this just recently, the instruction that God gave to the kings you know, anticipating that Israel would eventually have a king, he actually gave them instructions in the book of Deuteronomy how a king should function. And the king needed to remember that they were never to lord it over the people. They were among the people. And so one of the great temptations, I think, that comes to people in leadership is to become proud and arrogant. And we see that all the time. Isn't that right? And so it's a temptation for leaders. That's the one side. On the other side, uh, leaders have an unusual amount to deal with in the realm of criticism and people who don't like them because of what they're saying and what they're doing. How many know that's the truth as well? And let me just give you a little idea of that and probably one of the more intriguing moments of English history. I know some of you, you know your English history really well. Uh, Omar, you probably will follow this. Uh, let, me, let me just say that a lot of times when we watch a movie, a historical movie, they say things like, based on a true story. How many have ever seen that line? And that, uh, that only gives them license to tell you, yeah, this person and lived, but a lot of times they change things in the story. And I mean they change a lot of things. And what they're showing you is not the true reality and many times they take what I call artistic license and they portray people different than what they were really like in history. That may be shocking to some of us, but you know a lot of us think we're learning history when we're actually learning the wrong things. And I could point that out. I'm not, that's not my job tonight, but let me just point it this way. Some of us know a little bit about one of the kings, one of the house of Tudor, his name is Henry VIII. Now, what do we know about Henry VIII? Come on now, what do we know about him? He had more than one wife, right? He's famous for the fact that he had six wives. What also is he famous for? 
He's killing them. Yeah, he did do that. He had them killed. Yeah, this is one way to get rid of your spouse. Just kill them, right? You're the king, and who's going to stop you? Um, but he also had a little bit of a conscience, too. I, you know, we, yeah, I know. It's hard to believe when you're getting rid of people. But uh, what else was King Henry VIII famous for? Does anybody else know? What's that? <laughs> yeah, he was portly. Yes, he, he, he had, you know, yeah, okay, eating. Yeah, he was a big man. But that's, that's not the real thing. The thing that's probably the most interesting was the fact that he broke away from the Church of Rome. And he established the Church of England. And who would, did he make at the head of the Church of England? King. Himself, the king. He became the head of the, the, the church. I mean, that's, that's pretty convenient, right? Because now you're appointing bishops, and if they give you a bad time, you get rid of them. And he had some conflicts. Some of the guys he appointed later on started challenging him. He didn't really like that. That was the kind of guy he was. But after King Henry's death, he only had one male heir, and that was Edward. And he became Edward the Sixth. And Edward became the king at the at the powerful age of nine years old. Now, how many know that when you turn a monarchy over to a child, you have a thing called a regency, someone that helps them govern the land. And so there was a number of people that were appointed by Henry to be a regent, and he appointed one to be over the regency. And so everything was going fine. Now, I want to just backtrack for a moment and bring out a thought here that you need to know. There was a tension in England at this time. And the tension was simply this. You had a tension between, you know, the people who had been part of the Church of Rome and then people who had now experienced what was happening in the continental part of Europe called the Protestant Reformation. So you had Protestantism invading Europe. And so there was a tension between the two understandings of how to celebrate Christ, right? And that tension kind of went through this time. Well, uh, King Henry VI was a kind of a fragile little boy and he literally died at the age of 15 years old so he only lived six years that was the length of his reign and so the main regent in his uh, leadership over King Henry uh, Edward Edward was a little sympathetic to the Protestants all right everybody follow this and because of that the regent actually you know and with Edward's permission because Edward had a first cousin he really liked and her name was Lady Jane, uh, Lady Jane Grey. And so he willed her into be the success of succession plan to be the next monarch, to be the Queen of England. This was his first cousin. Now you have to understand something. When Henry died, he had a line of succession as well. First of all, it was Edward. And then if it wasn't Edward, it should be his daughter of his first marriage with Catherine of Aragon, Mary. Now, Mary was sympathetic to Catholicism. And then he also had, after Mary, in the line of succession, Elizabeth. Does everybody follow this? Are you keeping track with me? Watch what happens. So Lady Jane Grey becomes the new monarch. And the regent actually had his son marry Lady Jane. I think this guy wanted to have some measure of power in England. How many you know you got family connections like that? Your son becomes married to the queen. Now that lasted all of nine days. And there was so much popular unrest and, and it was an uprising against that move that the, the team of regents changed their mind and made Mary the Queen of England. Wow, that was a big change. Lady Jane was apprehended. She was tried for treason, though even though she, you know, she was just 15, 16 years old, really young, a very devout believer, 
She was tried for treason and eventually executed at the ripe old age of 16. A very godly young woman, by the way. Very sad. Okay, Mary comes to power. What happens now for the next five years, she's trying to facilitate the revival of Catholicism in England. And so during her reign, there was a lot of tension. And so during that time, she had put to the stake, in other words, people were burned at the stake, she had 280 people who were what we would call Protestant dissenters were killed under her reign. And so her reign became known as Bloody Mary. It was a very difficult time. She died five years later of cancer. So now she's gone, and the next person up in the line of succession is Elizabeth. Now, I, I bring all of that out because I wanted to show you something, that this was a very difficult time. And during Queen Elizabeth I's reign, she, she reigned for 44 years. That's a long time. And so we have this picture of this amazing amount of stability that was happening. But the reality was there were always difficulties during her reign. She had many, many challenges. But I want you to know this, that she had many, many times they found people, there were plots to assassinate her as the queen. And that didn't happen just one time. It happened many times. So if you want to do a little studying, it's kind of fascinating history. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? I'm trying to bring out the point simply this, that when people are in leadership, um, there's always people plotting, people who are a threat, people who want to change things. And so I I just wrote down this little statement, evil people are always plotting to advance their cause at the expense of others. Isn't that true? Now, let's move away from people for a moment. Let's look at it in a bigger frame of picture. Moving away from the people themselves, I am totally convinced from the scriptures that we're not dealing just with people. We're dealing with principalities and powers who are working through people. Who, and these principalities and power have an agenda that's actually in opposition to the plan and purposes of God. When you read through the scriptures, you see this. And so what we're really not dealing with is flesh and blood as much as we're dealing with these principalities and powers. And we're gonna come to that in a few minutes. So, You know, I I write down love is the last thing on these people's agenda. And so the issue is always over who's in control. It's a power struggle. It's always a challenging situation. And so in the the first opening verses of chapter 14, we're going to find basically three movements um, that contrast between what I call an evil aspiration with an amazing expression of love and devotion. Now, how many know the Bible likes to do this? It loves pitting contrasts, day and night, darkness and light. You have all these contrasting things happening. And so think of the opening 11 verses of the gospel of chapter 14 of Mark's gospel as a sandwich, and you'll really get an understanding. You'll start, it opens up with two verses. Then you have this interlude of an amazing story of love and devotion. And then you have the last two verses, which almost form the sandwich, which excuse me, moves us right back to the intention and what we're going to see, which intention it, it was. And so the first movement is simply a response to Jesus is the intention of those who are threatened by him. There are people who are threatened by Jesus. And I would argue today that that has never changed. Jesus threatens people. You, how many realize that? Not, no, not for us. We love him. We've, you know, we've, we've, we've come to understand you know, he's for us, he loves us, he died for us, but there are people who feel threatened by Jesus. You, you just mentioned Jesus' name. Throw his name around this week and see what happens. 
I, I, you know, not, I'm not talking about as a swear word. I'm talking about as you know, a, an expression of love and adoration. You start using his name with people. I believe there'll be some people threatened this week if you start to do this. Just try it. See what happens. You know, Pastor, I didn't, I didn't believe that would happen, but I'll, I just walked through the week and I started talking to people about Jesus and I guarantee you there'll be people threatened by his name. But if you don't believe me, try it. Uh, but when we look at the story, there's a plot to destroy Christ. The atmosphere is one of great danger and tension. And you know, a lot of times when we hear the story, you know, we kind of get immune to the intensity of the story. You know, how many times when you've seen a movie 15 times, after a while he just loses its, you know, punch. You know, we've heard the story of the gospel so many times. What I'm going to try to do tonight is repaint it and recast it in a way that you've never seen it before. Can you follow me with this? I'm going to kind of give you, I'm going to bring you into the story as if you were living in the first century. How many want to journey with me back to the first century and start moving into the, the sense of the emotion and the psychological understanding of the people at that time and that you will get a feeling for this chapter maybe you've never experienced before? Because I think we read this stuff and it just blows right on by us. Oh yeah, they didn't like Jesus. Oh yeah, they arrested him. Oh yeah, they killed him. Oh yeah, he rose again. Isn't that kind of how we breeze through reading the story of the gospel? Many times I think that's the way we handle it. But let's take a look at it. Mark 14.1. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now we're getting the setting of the story. It's at the Passover feast. We're only two days away, it says. It says here, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. They were looking for a discreet way of getting rid of Jesus, but they were deeply concerned about the timing. Now, let me just explain something to you. I, I, I actually pulled all this up, looked at it in the Greek New Testament, and I'm looking for what is Mark trying to emphasize in these 11 verses. And you want me to tell you what it is? Mark wants us to be gripped with the thought that they're plotting to kill Jesus. That these people are not satisfied with anything less than his death. You need to feel the pressure of this. These people are literally trying to figure out a way to kill Christ. We need to understand that. No, nothing less was their aim. They were, but they were really concerned about the people. Look what it says in verse 2. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. So now they're saying this is not the right moment. How many know that Jesus actually died on Passover? So obviously their plan did not work out according to their expectation, but in some ways it exceeded their expectation, and I'll explain why. Let me give you why they were thinking this way. They obviously, you know, this had been building as you're reading through the Gospels. You know, you're, all these confrontations with Jesus and the religious leaders was, was intensifying. It was actually building up to this crescendo where you finally are, you know, if you're, if you're listening to a symphony, this is like the timpani drums are rolling. You know, cymbals are going. This is like a big buildup. And they have come to the conclusion that the only way to deal with Jesus is to kill him. But they're trying to figure out how to go about doing it. And they are really concerned because it's at the Passover. Now, let's go back and understand why were they concer so concerned about that. Well, let me, let me bring out a few thoughts. Number one, every Jewish male under law was to go to Jerusalem to celebrate three feasts. 
And one of them was Passover and the other was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is, they were moving up towards this. And so the city of Jerusalem at this moment, now building up to the Passover, was growing in intensity. These are very devout people. And so the city would actually double, triple, quadruple in size during this moment. Now how many know when you have that many people pouring into a place, that's a very intense situation? How many think... I mean, just think, we just had that memorial games here. We probably had 10,000 extra people. We didn't even feel it. But how many, you know, if we'd have had 200, I mean, 100,000 or 200,000 people come into Red Deer, how many would go, you would totally feel it? You would feel the, the intensity of just the sheer volume of people. You know, a lot of times as North Americans, we don't even relate to this because, you know, we have so much space as Canadians. You have to go to another part of the world where there's an intensity of people to understand what's going on here. So there's a, a lot happening. So all of these people are pouring into this uh, situation. Now, what feast were they about to celebrate? Passover. What happened at the Passover? This was the beginning of their, actually, their history as a nation. They were a nation of slaves in the land of Egypt. Remember that? And they were under cruel oppression. How many see there's a little parallelism going on in this moment? Because now they're living under the cruel oppression of the Romans. And under the cruel oppression of the Egyptians, the Egyptians at that moment were at the pinnacle. They were the world empire. They were the strongest people on earth. They had the greatest military power at that time. And now they're living under Rome this amazing empire, this military juggernaut, this great oppressive empire. How many are beginning to feel there's a little parallelism going on here? And what happened in the story of the Passover is that God heard the cry of the oppressed people and he sent Moses as a deliverer, did he not? And Moses confronted the king of Egypt called the Pharaoh and he confronted him and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. Remember that? He resisted that command of God. And he said, who is Yahweh anyways? Because Pharaoh thought he was a god. And there was a battle. And all of a sudden, plagues begin to happen on the land of Egypt. Remember the story. And we get to the 10th plague. And what is the 10th plague? But that the firstborn would actually be destroyed. Wow. And God spoke to Moses and he said, now tell the Israelites the only way for the firstborn of Israel not to be destroyed was that they were to take a lamb and examine this lamb from the 10th day to the 14th day and to see that this lamb was without blemish. And they were to slay that lamb and they were to apply the blood of that lamb over the doorpost, the threshold of their households. So when the angel of death passed, it would pass over the household that had the blood applied over it and that judgment would pass over. And everywhere that that blood was not applied, the angel of death proceeded into that home and took the life of the firstborn until there arose a great human cry in the land, even to the firstborn of the Egyptian king. And that was the moment he relented and released the people. 
And then he changed his mind because he recognized he had lost his entire labor force and he pursued after them. And he got to the place called the Red Sea. Remember the story? And Moses lifted up his staff and said, you know, stand still, you will see the salvation of our God. And I want to declare to you today, when you read the Old Testament, you see God at work through the elements of nature destroying the armies, these foreign armies that were against his people. And the water parted and the Israelites passed through on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to come through, the Bible said the waters cascaded down, drowning them. And there was a great victory song. And how many know at that point Yahweh defeated the strongest, most powerful nation on earth and delivered his people from bondage. And now they are celebrating this feast in the midst of this Roman oppression. How do you think that that plays with your mind a little bit? How many understand in the Old Testament that when Israel walked in obedience with God and they were outnumbered by foreign armies, that actually the whole Old Testament is a picture of this military situation where, you know, their life with God was actually a life where God himself was seen as a mighty warrior. And when they would go into battle, it was actually considered a religious thing. They would actually inquire of God, is this your will to fight this battle? And then they would sacrifice and they would prepare themselves and they would make sure they consecrated themselves to make sure that they were in a right standing with God because they recognized when they went into battle, guess who would come into battle with him? Yahweh. They would carry in the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that amazing? And God would come into the midst of the battle and he would confuse the enemy. And many times when you're reading through the Old Testament, if you do this, you'll discover something very, very fascinating. Usually the Israelites were totally outnumbered. Usually they were ill-equipped to fight the battle. And yet over and over again, They would win these amazing victories because God would fight on their behalf. And you'd read statements like, and more died because God sent hail. The hailstones were killing the enemy more than even the sword. But whenever Israel would rebel against God and they'd begin to worship foreign gods and they would enter into idolatry, God would allow the enemies to oppress them. And God would actually fight against his own people. Isn't that interesting? And so we see this amazing picture, you know, in the Old Testament of these physical battles where God himself was engaged in the battle. So how many know when you get a story like the one I'm going to share in a moment here, when you have a young man like Jonathan who was the crown prince, his father was King Saul, and the Philistines were pressing in, and, you know, they didn't know what to do, and Jonathan decides, hey, I'm tired of sitting around doing nothing, and he says to his armor bearer, listen to these words in 1 Samuel, he says, You know, come, let's go over to the outposts of those whom? Those uncircumcised fellows. Those uncircumcised Philistines. In other words, those ungodly people. Let's just go over there. And then he said, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Why would Jonathan say something like that? Because he knew his history. He knew the story of Gideon. You know, remember when Gideon was going to fight against the Midianites and he had 32,000 men. What did God say to him? Well, he reminded him that there were certain acts to prepare for war. And the first thing was, if anybody's afraid to go in battle, send them home. And the Bible says when Gideon made that call and appeal, 10,000 people left. 
and he was left with 22,000 people. And God said what to get in? He said, you've still got too many. Because if you fight now and win, you're going to take the credit for it. You're not going to see the hand of Yahweh in the midst of this battle. And so he said, I want you to go down to this water. And he says, I'm going to separate and I'm going to, I'm going to dwindle down your army to the right amount. And you know what the right amount was? 300. Now, 300 people are going to fight thousands of enemy soldiers. How many go? That's that's a little terrifying, God. You've just reduced, I mean, that doesn't, how many think that doesn't sound like a good battle strategy? Diminishing your forces down to 300 people. And yet that's exactly what God told Gideon to do. And he says, hey, Gideon, by the way, if you're afraid, crawl up to the enemy camp. I'll, I'll encourage you. And we know the story. One of the guys wakes up. He's had this terrible dream. And he sees this you know, barley loaf rolling in and toppling a tent. And so one of his neighbors says, well, I know what that is. He says, that's, that's, that's Gideon. And he's going to roll in here and destroy us. And Gideon crawls back up the hill and he says, hey, we've got these guys licked. God just revealed to me we're going to win this battle. And we know the story. How did they beat these guys? They had pitchers and trumpets and a little lamp. And they went in to fight the battle. How many go, weird battle strategy. And he divided the company into three. And he says, do as I do. And pretty soon he crashed the pitchers, lifted up the light, and they blew their trumpets. And the Midianites in the middle of the night were totally confused. They started fighting with each other. And Gideon's army wasted them, the 300 men. Because God was in that battle. Now you have to understand, this is the mindset of these people. You ever wondered why they would tackle the Romans? Because they saw themselves as the people of the living God. And if God be for us, who could be against us? And see, we need to understand that this is the right mindset, even as believers today, because so often we're so afraid of what the world is doing and what the world is saying. But folks, if you and I are where we're supposed to be, we do not need to be afraid. I'll tell you, doesn't take a lot of people. God can fight with one. How do you know that? Read the story of Samson. And Samson was a long ways from being the kind of guy you and I would have picked as a, as a hero of faith. Isn't that true? He had a lot of issues. Yeah, but God used him in spite of himself. Why am I saying all of this? You have to understand the mindset at that moment. Now, what was happening at this moment, the week before? Jesus had come into the city riding on a donkey. What were the people doing? They were waving palm branches. They were singing Hosanna, which means save now. They had a hope that the Messiah would come back and liberate them from their oppressors. And when you and I read the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, when we flip over and read the letter to the Revelation, when we see that there's a moment coming when the Messiah will come again and he will make sure that the kingdoms of this world become his, his kingdom. How many get an idea that God is stronger than all the armies of humanity. And so they had this image in their mind. You see, they didn't see a little bump on the road. They didn't realize that when Jesus came, he wasn't just going to defeat physical national armies. You see, because for so long, the Jewish people had been under the domination of many different nations, had they not? 
They had been under the Assyrians. They had been under the Babylonians. They had been under the Greeks. They had been under, you know, the Romans. But Jesus came not to deliver from human oppression. Jesus came to deliver from the spiritual powers that were ruling over these nations. Jesus came to destroy the work and principalities of darkness. Jesus came to defeat the work of Satan. And what does that mean for us? That the greater slavery that you and I battle is not just the slavery of men and women oppressing us, but it's the slavery of sin itself, right battling within our own soul. Jesus came to set us free. But they didn't know that. They didn't get that part. They didn't read the memo. They weren't quite getting it. And so there was an expectation that the Messiah would come and that he would literally set them free. And now you have this fever pitch building in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had just come in. They really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. How many say this is like a tinderbox? This thing is about ready to explode. How many see it now? Did I paint the picture? Does everybody say, okay, it looks a little different than what I was thinking before? I'm just giving you all this background to kind of shoot all this stuff into your system. How many are going, I'm, I'm seeing a little more of an intense picture than I ever thought? Anybody see it? Oh, just a few of you are nodding your heads. The rest of you are going, oh, I already knew this stuff, Pastor. <laughs> you mean I did all this work to prepare this sermon? You all knew this stuff? Just kidding. So Mark is showing us the connection between the feast and what is about to happen. I like what James Edwards says. Already in the description of the plot against Jesus, a connection with the Passover is discernible. For the language of death which necessarily described the Passover lamb is applied to Jesus. The redemption that will be wrought at the cross or purchased at the cross or you know, developed at the cross, no less than that at the Red Sea will be won by the cost of the firstborn. Except for in this situation, it's not the firstborn of the enemies that are going to die. But the firstborn, Jesus is called the firstborn. Actually, Jesus wins by dying. How many go, that's, that was not in their thinking? As a matter of fact, I would argue that that's not in our thinking. See, we don't see surrender as the avenue of victory. We don't see it that way, do we not? We don't see forgiveness as the avenue of victory. But it is, and that's what Jesus teaches us. To be, for the lamb to be slain is none other than the Lord Jesus himself. So how do we apply his sacrificial death to our lives in order to be free from our sins? Well, I have us turn to John 3.16, a very familiar passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then we read this about God. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but, the wor but to save the world through him. Isn't that an amazing thought? God is not here to condemn people. We've got to get a hold of this truth as Christians. We're not here to condemn people. That's not our job. Help us, Lord. We cannot condemn people. That's not what this is about. If we're going to be Christ-like, we cannot condemn people. We've got to come at this a little differently, folks. You go, 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In other words, there are people living under condemnation. And it's our job to help them realize that they can be free from condemnation. I love that. So then, if God is so good and God is so loving and he's not here to condemn us, why is it that people are rejecting Jesus? I'm so glad you asked that question. I know it's plagued you, so I'm gonna give you an answer. As we keep reading this text, it says here, this is the verdict, light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Now he's obviously speaking metaphorically of light and darkness, right? He's speaking of good and evil. He's saying the reason why people love darkness, why they love sin, why they love being removed from the light is because they enjoy doing what they're doing. They don't want to stop doing their evil. There are people that actually find pleasure in evil. They're captured by it. It says he who... Everyone who does evil hates the light. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Do we understand now why they hated Jesus? He was light. He was revealing darkness. And the, and the response is hatred. You know, sometimes we have a hard time with all of this. We go, I don't get why people hate me. Maybe it's not you they hate. Maybe it's Christ in you they hate. As a matter of fact, I would argue that the more you and I become like Jesus, don't be shocked if people start hating you. We're always surprised by that. You know, why would, you, you say the most loving person, people actually start hating. How in the world can that be? Because there's darkness within the human soul. There's a lot of insecurity, a lot of envy, a lot of jealousy, a lot of anger, right? And so all of a sudden they see a very secure person, a beautiful person, a loving person, a person who's not dealing with a whole bunch of emotional mess up in their soul, and all of a sudden they look at this person, and all of a sudden they hate that person. They envy that person. They direct all of their anger, all of their frustration, all of their disappointment towards that individual. You hear what I'm saying? Wow. So how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, all of us have sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one person on this planet who doesn't need Jesus. I would argue that there's seven billion people on this planet, and I don't care, you know, and here's where I differ with a lot of people. Not all religions are the same. You need to understand something. God came into this world. God, the creator of this world, came into this world and died for this world. And anything less than receiving Christ as Savior leaves you in a state of condemnation. In all the religious things people are doing, as far as God's concerned, they're the equation of a filthy rag. Boy, that's shocking to the pride of a moral person. Nobody wants to be told that. Isn't that true? Jesus said to one of the most moral people that ever lived, his name was Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, what a startling statement. I don't think we can back away from that. The second thing I learned from this is that even as Jesus was persecuted, you and I can anticipate the same. Listen to what Paul writes. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. Oh, I misread that. You see, I think that's what we think. We think, well, maybe I'll be persecuted. Listen to what it says. If I'm living a godly life, I will be persecuted. It's not if I will, it's I will be. Now let me explain to you, there's different levels of persecution. 
You know, there's social persecution where people don't like you just because you're a Christian. And you know, a lot of people in our culture don't like us. There's a lot of people saying nasty stuff about us. They name call us. They, you know, they say that we're, you know, we're intolerant, we're bigoted, we're racist. We have a whole list of names. You know, a lot of people are saying nasty things about us as Christians. Anybody know that? So that's a measure of persecution. So you're getting some persecution. If you say, I'm a Christian, you, you identify with Christ, immediately you fall into that camp, and there's a lot of people that are saying nasty things about you and about me. All right? But you know what? It intensifies. You know, you and I, you know, if we keep walking with Jesus, there's going to be people who are going to be nasty toward us. As a matter of fact, it's possible that you and I can work at a place and all of a sudden, just because we love Jesus, you know, we can get in trouble at work. And people can lose their jobs just because they won't do an evil thing. You know, if you refuse to do something you're told to do by a superior and they ask you to do something that is evil or immoral or illegal and you say no, they just send you packing. And you go, I'm being fired because I did the right thing. And there are people that that happens to them. You know? Listen, this is going to intensify. I believe it's possible to go to jail because you're a Christian. And actually, some of the laws that are changing in our land right now are eventually going to cause great consternation to us as Christians because you know what? If we even say certain things, they're going to say, you're going to go to jail for doing that. I go, really? So now I'm going to go to jail for doing the right thing. I'm standing for the word of God. I'm going to speak the word of God. Now I'm going to jail for it. Well, you know, there's been a few other people that have gone to jail. One is Jesus was put in jail. Paul was put in jail. Peter was put in jail. I guess I'm in pretty good company, you know, right? If you end up going to jail, that's not the word. I, could, I say, well, hey, I'm just like Jesus. I'm getting put in jail for doing the right thing. Now, this is different than being put in jail for the wrong thing. Don't, don't confuse it. Now, this is being put in jail for the right thing. And you know, there are people that I personally have met who have been killed because they followed Jesus. Some of the students I taught in India now are martyred. And that has really affected me in a very profound way because these people, all they did was preach the gospel and people came and killed them because they were talking about Jesus. That could happen. And when you read the book of Revelation, even though it's apocalyptic language, there are people that are being martyred for their faith. And we know that that's Satan's intention. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, he says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. We have an enemy, folks. He's trying to destroy us. We need to understand that. So I think we've got to stop pretending that, you know, well, we live in this nice country. No one's going to bother us. Now we have an adversary. We better pay attention. Let me move on to the second thing is the expression of love and devotion by an unnamed woman. Later on, we're going to find out who she really is because John tells us who she is. Mark has a way of sandwiching in between the plot this amazing contrast, which also triggers the acceleration of Christ's death. Isn't this amazing? A good thing ends up costing Jesus his life. Mark chapter 14, verse 3, while he was in Bethany, which is a couple of miles away on the Mount of Olives, Reclining at a table in the home of a man named, known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. Nard actually originates from India. And so it was being produced and brought over to the Middle East, to you know, Israel at this time. And it was extremely expensive. As a matter of fact, we read a little later on that it was actually worth a, way, a year's wage. It was probably this woman's heirloom. 
Now, I just read the other day that the average salary in Red Deer is $75,000. So can you imagine somebody buying a bottle of perfume worth $75,000, taking it, opening it up, and pouring it on somebody? Some people would go, what a waste of money. You know, you think about $75,000, we could have done this with that, we could have done this with that. I could just imagine, you know, you know, pouring out a, a vial of perfume worth $75,000 in the church here, and somebody would sure, be sure to say, what did you guys just do with that? And as a matter of fact, we read the story here, you know, that people got upset. James Edwards rightly has pointed out, um, the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence, but it has a problem with too much religion. In other words, if you really love Jesus, people have a problem with that. You know, they'll tell you, calm down. A little moderation. And yet when we read the story, this is not a moderation story. It's an extravagant story. It's, amu- it's amusing. And amazing, I'm saying. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? As a matter of fact, that word indignantly literally means the flaring of the nostril. These people were angry and upset about it. They were harshly rebuking this woman. What looked like a waste to them was actually a powerful expression of faith, love, and adoration. Jesus is about to call this a beautiful thing rather than a wasteful thing because it was an act of worship. And I'm going to argue with you, some of us think singing is worship. Can I just tell you, that's only an outward expression. True worship isn't singing. True worship comes from the heart. True worship is coming from our innermost being. God knows if we're really worshiping or not. Listen to what they said, verse 5. It could have been sold for more than a year's wage and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. And we know from John's gospel that one of the voices... Because the only people having dinner there was Jesus and his disciples. So obviously it wasn't just Judas, as we're going to find out. It was a few other disciples felt this way. You know, it's amazing what happens. We can easily get critical of other believers. Isn't that true? Listen to what John says. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. He was upset because his opportunity to, you know, have a bigger financial, you know, benefit to himself was now gone. But now we see Jesus rising to her defense. He said, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want. In other words, Jesus is not saying, you know, don't take care of the poor. What he's saying is, you'll always have that opportunity, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth that whenever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know, extravagant love is always remembered. Sacrificial love is always seen as a wasted life by some, and the greatest expression of love is literally for us to give our lives for others. Isn't that the greatest expression of love? You know, my command, Jesus said, is love each other as I've loved you. No greater love, uh, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. But I want you to know, Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life for his enemies. That's what Paul says. While we were yet sinners, Christ commended his love towards us. That's such an amazing thought. You know, in this story, 
Mark leaves the woman unnamed, but John tells us who it is. It's actually Mary, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It says in John, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, poured it on Jesus' feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Do you know, when we worship, there's a fragrance to it before Almighty God. Do you know what it tells me? Of all the people, Jesus was telling all of them that he was about to die, one person heard him, Mary. She heard that he was about to die, and she took that oil to prepare for his burial. What a powerful thought. Let me move on here really briefly to the third point. It's the expectation of an opportunity to betray him. You know, there's been so many people trying to surmise, why did Judas Iscariot betray Jesus? You know, John's answer was, oh, he's just a thief. I mean, he tells you that in John's gospel. But listen to what it says here in verse 10 of Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests. They didn't come to him. He went to them to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. Obviously, that's what was motivating this guy. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Isn't that amazing? You know... There will come moments in all of our lives where testings and temptations will come our way. And what's within us will come out. It's just a matter of time. James Edwards, this noted New Testament scholar, he says this. Judas was one of the twelve, and yet Mark is now warning his readers in the first century that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. Wow. Indeed, greater intimacy with Jesus requires greater watchfulness. Think about it. Who was in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus? 500 brethren in the hills of Galilee that were followers of Christ that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection? No. Was it the 120 that were in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to fall on the day of Pentecost? No. It was the 12 close followers of Jesus that were in the Garden. What did Jesus say to those disciples? Watch and pray. And what did they do? They fell asleep. They were exhausted. They were emotionally taxed. And they fell asleep. It wasn't people who were at a distance that forsook Jesus. It wasn't people who were at a distance that denied him. But it was the actual closest followers of Jesus who are sifted in a time of testing. Why am I bringing this out? I'm bringing it out because if you and I who are close followers of Jesus are not watching and praying, when the test comes, we'll falter and fail. And there may come days of testing. And how will we do? Notice the response of the religious leaders as Judas approached them. They were delighted. You know, I have to ask myself a question. What delights you? The thing that brings delight to your heart says a lot about who you are. Did you know that? Now I want you to think about this. What delights the heart of God? Do you know what it is? I was thinking about that. I was reminded of a parable that Jesus told. He was being criticized because he was, you know, bringing in people that were publicans and sinners into the kingdom of God. And so he told a parable. It's actually broken down into three movements. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy. And in that, you have this refrain at every single stage, and it keeps saying things like, uh, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know what God gets delight over? When people change their mind. When they finally have an awakening in their soul and they say, you know what? I've been doing what's right in my own eyes. Now I want to do what's right in God's eyes. That is a whole change of life, folks. When you and I move away from being the Lord of our own souls to surrendering our lives to his lordship. And by the way, that's a pretty significant step if you think about it. Because what you're basically saying is, not my will, but yours be done. And I'm going to have a stand. You know, as I was thinking about this message, you know, and I was working on it, you're always asked, ask, asking a question in your mind, so what difference does this make? What difference does this message make? I'm contrasting terrible evil for an amazing expression of love and devotion, right? You can see that. And yet in the human heart, there's this huge challenge in all of our lives. As a matter of fact, I've pointed out to you, sometimes the closest people fail the most miserably. And in this room, you know, we probably could all say as a Christian at moments or times or times in our lives, we haven't always done what we thought was the right thing to do. We haven't always shown Christ-like love to somebody. Maybe we've, you know, because a lot of times we can say, well, I really love God, but the reality is I know how much I love God based on how I treat Patty and treat Rachel and Andrea. Those are my two daughters. The people that I'm the closest to, the way I treat them is actually God's real barometer of how I really love God. Yeah, it's very easy to say I love God. You know, God is easy to get along with. How many know that's true? Because it just seems so distant. I don't have him booming in my ears every day telling me what to do. But I do have, you know, flesh and blood people running around me all the time, saying and doing stuff. I have challenging people that maybe I work with, maybe that I'm frustrated by, maybe they're, you know, who knows what. Maybe you're saying, you know, I have a really irritable coworker. Maybe I have, you know, a child that's really rebellious and it's driving me crazy. Maybe my boss is unsympathetic and harsh and demanding. You know, start thinking about the different relationships you have. And then I think about what's happening in our nation and some of the changes of laws and some of the people that, you know, don't like us because we're Christians and are trying to shout us down and intimidate us and create these laws. And, and you know, some of them, you know, mock us, and put us down and tell us how stupid we are. How am I going to respond to that when somebody with hate-filled eyes comes before me and tells me they hate me? How am I going to respond to that? Am I going to allow that evil to overcome me and I'm going to respond in like kind? Or am I going to be so full of the Spirit of the living God that the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, flows out of me? And I believe that the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5.22 is actually singular. It says the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And it starts with love. And I believe all the other eight uh, essentials that are being listed behind love are actually a demonstration of love. I believe that joy is an expression of how we live out love. That you and I are full of joy, even when life doesn't make sense to us. And even though there may be hardship and difficulty in my life, in my personal circumstances and not what I want it to be, but am I filled with joy? Because I know that God is in control. And that I can just live life with this amazing sense of joy. Or, you know, is there peace in my life? Or am I allowing anxiety and irritation to, you know, just devour my life and I'm frustrated and angry all the time? Or do I have peace in my heart? Or do I have self-control? Or am I patient and long-suffering? 
You see, all of these things tell me how much of God's love is really in me. So with every head bowed tonight, first of all, I want to ask, I'm going to ask two quick questions. Question number one. Maybe you're here tonight and you heard God's loving remarks to you. He said, you know what? I didn't hear, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to set you free. I'm the greatest lover that you'll ever meet. I'm the one, the only one on this planet who will love you unconditionally. Everybody else will love you with conditions. And you don't know him as a savior. You don't know him as your Lord. But tonight you say, you know what? I want to be loved by someone who would die for me even while I had no thought for him. Maybe that's you tonight. Just raise your hand and say, Pastor, would you pray with me? I want to surrender to him. Is there anyone here? Well, hopefully we're all saved. That would be awesome. I'm going to ask a question of us as believers. Here's my question as a believer. You say, you know, if I was to evaluate my love life right now, it's pretty low. There's a lot of things agitating and bothering me. But you know what? I want to be full of the Spirit. I want to overcome all of life's challenges and temptations and tests that will come my way. I don't want to live an angry life, an irritated life, a frustrated life. I want to live a life where I really trust God where I can learn to love my spouse better, where I can learn to love my children more, where I can show a greater degree of patience. You know, we're very critical and patient of each other. That's true. I watch it all the time. People are very critical and patient of one another. You know, we need to say, God, I need your your grace in my soul, that I can be far more understanding. And I don't, it's not so much about me being understood, but I become more understanding. It's not so much that I need to be loved, but I learn to be more loving. That's an amazing thought. How many here say, you know what, I need that. I need more of God's spirit in my life. Just raise your hand, let's be honest. Open up your hearts to God, Raise them, lift both hands to God, say, God, I would lift both hands. I say, fill me right now. I'm a vessel before you. I need love to flow into me, Lord, because the only way love is gonna flow through me is if love flows into me. And I'm opening my heart to you tonight. I'm asking you to forgive me, Lord, of my, my sinfulness. Because you know what? It's been me, Lord. It's been me. There's been selfishness. You know, I'm a needy person, God. I need your spirit to fall on me tonight. I need you to fill me to overflowing. I need love to flow into my innermost being. I want to be so full of your spirit that when people bump into me, love spills out of me. When people criticize me, love flows from me. When people judge me, And when they show anger and hatred towards me, they see forgiveness and grace flowing from me. Wow, what do, that's that's how you overcome evil, folks. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that awesome that God wants to do this for us? When we ask him, Lord, fill me. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your presence. Fill me with your grace tonight. So that I can be all that you want me to be. Patient, loving, understanding, kind, long-suffering. Amen? Amen? Are you receiving from the Lord tonight? Have you opened your heart to Him? Have you made that your cry? He is hearing the cry of your soul tonight. Isn't that amazing? Isn't He a great God? He wants to do it. He wants to express His love through you and me. He wants us to overcome all the hatred 
that is being directed at us as believers. Isn't that amazing? You know how you overcome evil? You do good. You bless. You now we have, we have opportunities. God's going to give you opportunities to practice this. You know, I have people treat me terribly. I've made a decision as a pastor. I'm going to treat them lovingly. I've had people treat me nasty. You don't know that. As a leader, remember I told you, leaders are not always popular. Sometimes leaders make decisions. People hate them. They hate them for that decision. And then I have a choice. I can, I can respond in kind, or I can respond in forgiveness, and in compassion, and in love. It's a test. I know it's a test. Lord, fill me. Fill me, Lord. You know, when I have the urge, when someone who is demonized is standing in front of me, telling me they're going to kill me. I have a moment there where I have to say, Lord, help me to love this person. To see them set free. Believe me, I've had that happen to me. I'm not talking from a lack of experience here. I've had that in my life. Lord, help me to love that person. Help me to speak words of grace and love back to that person who's broken and needs to be set free. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.